Who's the shrink for a shrink in a combat zone? You're listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, Dr. Gary Cohn, and joining me is Dr. Heidi Squire-Craft. She's Deputy Manager for the Navy's Combat Stress Control Program in San Diego, California. Dr. Kraft is a clinical psychologist, and in 2004, she served more than seven months as the Navy's officer in charge of a combat stress platoon at a remote air base in western Iraq. She and her team were responsible for the mental health care of thousands of Marines and sailors. Today, we're going to be talking about who's the shrink for a shrink in a combat zone. Heidi, thanks for being with us today. We appreciate it. It's my pleasure. Let's talk a little bit about uh, you before we talk about the book some more. Um, tell us about your psychology background and how you ended up in Western Iraq. I am a uh, clinical psychologist by training, trained at UC San Diego in the School of Medicine, specializing in behavioral medicine with every intent of going on to be a psychologist on a transplant team or in cardiac rehab. And during my internship at Duke, learned via a friend of mine who was going through flight training that the Navy had flight psychologists. Due to my love of flying, I I decided to take a turn and end up in the Navy for for some time. Thought it would be great to be able to fly in some really amazing aircraft, which I did, and it was great, and ended up staying for 10 years. Took care of the aviation fleet for my first two tours and then switched over to be a staff psychologist at a hospital and and, uh, was promptly deployed to support the Marines during the the beginning of the conflict. We were there in 2004, very early on in the war. Right. And um, tell us how you came to the uh, title for your book, Rule Number 2. It's based on an episode in MASH when Colonel Blake tells Hawkeye that there are two rules of war. Rule number one is that young men die, and rule number two is that doctors can't change rule number one. And that's still true, isn't it? It is still true, unfortunately. In your book, you uh, described an episode where you were talking to a pilot, a non-medical type, and he asked you the question, who's the shrink for a shrink in a combat zone? Who did take care of the medical providers, you, your staff? Was there any thought given to that issue at all? Not at the time. I think we were, as I said, very early in the conflict, and and we weren't thinking that way. And medical people, as your audience knows, are very other-focused. We think of our patients. And we do not typically think of ourselves or each other first. We're trying to change that and sort of change our schema, the way that we look at the care of ourselves and each other. But when I was there, I was there with a psychiatrist, my my partner, who is still one of my dear friends, and two psychiatric technicians. And we took care of our medical staff. We felt like that was our responsibility, to keep an eye on them. So we spent a lot of time in their spaces and with them while the casualties came in and kind of always just keeping a little bit of a roving look on how people were doing because it was, it was really tough on them a lot of times. There were situations they could not have possibly been prepared for in any kind of training. So that was our responsibility. Mm-hmm. You wrote that in some ways and, and in some unexpected ways, sometimes your patients took care of you. Could you share, uh, particularly I'm thinking about the uh, triple amputee that arrived in your unit and and how he affected uh, your staff? This was a remarkable young man, a uh, gunnery sergeant in the Marine Corps who had lost both legs at different places and part of one arm. He was waiting in a overflowing 
uh, operating an emergency room suite, waiting to be medevac to the next level of care, had morphine on board and was waiting for the helicopter to land. And while he was sitting there, one of the nurses, one of the surgical nurses walked past him and he kind of motioned for her to come over and he asked her, how many Irishmen does it take to change a light bulb? And she stopped and looked at him. Now, he's a recently injured. Within an hour, yeah. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, she, she stared at him, and he said, it's just too serious in here, ma'am. You, you people need to lighten up. And he started telling jokes, and he told jokes for the next half hour until the helicopter came to get him, and this very weary medical staff that had been overrun with casualties for the past couple of days and hadn't slept very much, sat and laughed for a half an hour while this uh, Marine told them jokes. So mm. you never know where the, where the grace is going to come from. <laughs> yeah, sometimes it even comes from uh, non-human uh, sources. Uh, yes. Could you share with us a little bit about how a dog figured into your uh, health care plans? Yes, this was very interesting. We had an Army veterinarian with us. And he was there specifically to take care of the Marine Corps' working dogs. Uh, There's a fair number of them out in country. They did very important jobs, but they got hurt and they got sick. And so there were these Army vets out there. And and he was stationed with us because we had the anesthesia machines. And he could actually, he had a surgical suite there. It was pretty cool. So these dogs would come in sometimes. And he knew I loved dogs. So he would always give me a call if he had a dog that was of the type of personality that would be amenable to someone coming and just petting it while it was recovering. And uh, so this was sort of my own little pet there. I would come down there and just stroke these dogs' heads while they sat there. Mm -hmm. I I always felt a lot better. Um, But anyway, one of my patients, a, a a young Marine, female Marine, was struggling with depression the whole time we were out there and at one point was really in crisis. And I, I really worked hard with her to keep her functional so that she could stay with her unit, which is what she wanted to do. And at one point in the deployment, she came to me and told me that she had uh, adopted this little puppy. There were all these wild dogs out there that were abandoned on the bases, and they had puppies. So a lot of the units would sort of take these puppies under their wings and get people to send them dog food from the States, and, and these puppies sort of became unofficial mascots. So she took care of this little puppy and fell in love with it and wanted to send it home. So she brought it to our vet, Major Lunum, and and Tim, our vet, did all the shots and neutered the puppy, and then she arranged to have it transported with a flight that was heading back to Kuwait anyway. Um, and it got to Kuwait, and Tim arranged for it to be in the quarantine it needed to be, and then her parents bought a plane ticket. For the dog. And the dog got home. Yeah, the dog went home, waiting for her when she came home. And, and really, I saw this remarkable turnaround of her depressive symptoms when she had this incredible thing of hope in her life. It was, it was quite something. It was remarkable. Wow. Well, if you're just uh, joining the discussion, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Gary Cohn, and I'm speaking with Dr. Heidi Squire-Craft. We're talking about who's the shrink for a shrink in a combat zone. Heidi, um, you wrote, um, I thought rather eloquently, about your change in, I guess I'll say, sensitivity uh, to your patients and to their emotional states while you were in country. Uh, You talked about normal fear. You talked about things that sounded like mini panic attacks and some symptoms that sounded almost dissociative. Could you share with us a little bit about how you remember that now and how you were when you came back? 
I remember it as a ongoing slide, like a decline of the normal arousal mechanism. I think the whole thing started off very scary and hyper-aroused all the time about everything, about my patients, about my own mortality, about my comrades. And as the seven months went on, I became more and more numb. And I think looking back on this now, it's pretty obvious why that happened. I, I had to stay functional. So there was not going to be the ability to feel that much of anything. I couldn't feel sad for my patients. I couldn't feel connected with their traumas because there was so much of it. I had to shut it off. And so in doing so, I also shut off myself. I, I became sort of a dissociative isn't a bad word. I, I remember sort of looking at myself sometimes and thinking, wow, where, where are you? You know, really feeling lost and almost like I was drowning a couple of times of just a shell of a person sometimes that was just functioning. And, and I think I took very good care of my patients even in that, that way. I just unfortunately didn't take very good care of myself. So by the time I came home, I, I was in trouble. I'm the first to admit it. And I think writing the book, writing rule number two, was my therapy. I didn't realize it as I was writing it. I thought I was writing a memoir for my children so that they would get it someday, why I had to leave. But what I did was take myself through trauma therapy. And, and at the end of the manuscript, I felt solid again. I had re-experienced it, and, and a lot of the symptoms went away with it. I suspect that that's uh, a um, modality you've probably recommended to patients over the years, writing about their issues. And here you are doing it yourself, right? Since you've come back, have you had occasion to share more directly with other uh, providers who went through the same thing? Are there support groups? Should there be support groups for... The Navy is kind of rolling out Interestingly, using the book, using rule number two as a way to start the discussion. I never intended for this to happen, but it's been quite interesting. I have been talking to groups of providers using my experience and my already desensitized ability to speak about it as a way to start discussions about what we need to do to care for each other as a medical community. We're all we have. You said that uh, originally it might have been intended for your kids. Now, when you left for Iraq, you left behind a husband and I guess it was 14-month-old twins. Do you think that made you a better therapist? Did it uh, hurt you? Did it distract you? How'd you deal with that? The very first night that we took incoming rockets, we had only been there a week, 10 days, and we started taking incoming, which continued the whole time. The windows were breaking and the walls were shaking and things were falling and we all had to come face to face with the fact that, oh my gosh, we're a bunch of doctors and nurses and we may not go home from this. It's a really strange realization that someone's trying to kill you and they might succeed. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and at that moment, my feeling about my children had to change. I could not keep them in my consciousness. I could not allow myself to search for how they felt to hold or what I felt as a mother. If I was going to be a good doc and a good officer in this situation, I had to compartmentalize them. So I took all their pictures and I put them under my cot and I decided I couldn't be a mother and a combat psychologist at the same time. I had to make a choice. So I would give myself brief windows during the deployment when I would call, when I would read emails, when I would look at pictures and feel them again. But again, as with the numbness, that feeling disappeared too. Mm -hmm. And it was, it was quite a challenge to get it back. That being said, I think I was probably a better therapist. I've been told by people since, well, don't you think you were everybody's mother? So people probably felt that in you, 
to some extent. You know, there's that sense of comfort around your mother that every, that's universal, what most people have. So I hope, despite how much it hurt, I hope that it made a difference to a mm-hmm. few people. And uh, your kids are about four now? They're five. And they have no recollection of any of this, I suppose? Not at all. I got them camels that I had their name embroidered in Arabic ah, right, in right, Kuwait. Right. So they have their camels, and they know they have pictures of me, certainly. They know what I look like when I was in the desert. They knew I was with the Marines, because their dad's a Marine, so they know what a Marine is. But uh, no, they have no clue. <laughs> well, we certainly have a record of that, uh, not only for them, but thankfully, I think, uh, for the rest of us. And uh, I want to thank you for taking some time to share that with us. My guest has been Dr. Heidi Squire-Craft. We've been talking about her new book, Rule Number 2, Lessons I Learned in a Combat Hospital. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on Reach MD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. To comment or listen to our full library of podcasts, visit us at reachmd.com. Register with promo code radio and receive six months free streaming for your home or office. Thanks for listening.